A reading from the second letter of John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only, but I also who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I was overjoyed to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have been commanded by the Father. But now, dear lady, I ask you, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. Let us love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning. You must walk in it. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and any person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Be on your guard so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but may receive a full reward. Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, but goes beyond it, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Do not receive into the house or welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching. For to welcome is to participate in the evil deeds of such a person. Although I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister send you their greetings. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words that flow from my mouth make sense because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you could be forgiven for wondering while Rhonda was reading, hmm, I'm not sure I've ever heard a sermon on that passage. Or even, I'm not sure I've ever heard that passage read in a church service before. But take comfort in the knowledge that you've just got through a whole book of the Bible in one sitting. Tick. The second letter of John doesn't actually have a place in the Sunday cycle of the lectionary that all good Anglicans will follow when choosing uh, the readings to use for Sundays. The fact that we're using it this Sunday probably shows you how good an Anglican I am. Um, Though you might have noticed that we did look at um, the first letter of John, we looked at John earlier this year, and um, over the next few weeks we're going to look at uh, 2 and 3 John. But it's likely, if you're anything like me and been going to an Anglican church your whole life, that you've never heard a sermon on the second letter of John. If you've been doing a Bible in a year program, you've probably blinked and missed uh, this section. It's only very short, 13 verses. There's really not enough for a whole Bible study series or a sermon series. So I suspect that many of us 
are unfamiliar with the words of this book. It's a quick read, but there is plenty of challenge and there's plenty to unsettle the modern-day Christian. So I'm glad this year we have an opportunity to explore this book, even if it is just for one Sunday. The passage starts with a unique opening, but quickly is followed by some familiar words about loving one another. But when we get to verse 7, we start hearing about deceivers and the Antichrist. And at a first pass, it seems to indicate that we shouldn't be tolerant, inclusive or welcoming of those who don't share our point of view, which might make us wonder, does that sound like something that we should really be doing? One commentary that I read uh, this week described verse 7 to 11 as a notorious prescription of Christian shunning. D. uh, D. Moody Smith says of 2 John, there is a sufficiency of bigotry and intolerance about so that we do not need the second epistle to encourage it. And he's described as being one of the more friendly biblical scholars who talks about the second letter of John. But the second letter of John is in every one of our Bibles. And even though you may never have considered its content, or even if you have considered and then dismissed it, or especially if you have considered and applied it, it is worth spending some time reflecting on. If you've heard me preach before, you will know that context always matters. The problem is that we know very little about the context of this letter. The elder was a title that scholars believe many gave to John the Apostle later in his life. It's quite possible that the elect lady to which the letter is written was the church to which John writes, and her children are the members of the church. It is possible that he writes a letter to a specific individual whose home the church met in, but I tend to favour the idea that it's the personification of the church. And it particularly makes verse 13 make sense that the elect sister that John talks about is the church from which John is writing. But from where and to where and when the letter is written is really all guesswork. It's possible that the brevity of the letter was because of the persecution that was happening at the time and the possibility that if the letter was discovered and people were identified, that they would get persecuted even more. Or it could just be a short note of encouragement in a time of disconnection, a little bit like we're living through now. You might wonder that the end of the letter could read if we were reading it today. Although I have much to say to you, I would rather not use email, text, Zoom or live stream. Instead, I hope to come to you when the borders open and the restrictions ease and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Amen. 
As we read, particularly through the opening verses, we see two dominant themes emerge, truth and love. And so before we get to the more contentious verses verses in verse 7 and 11, we hear about truth five times and love four times. I suspect John would argue that we can't have one without the other. You can't forsake love in the name of truth. And you can't forsake truth in the name of love. Love without truth has no substance and doesn't express the depth or honesty of a relationship. But truth without love has a sense of brutality about it. Who could forget uh, the famous um, scene from Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men about truth. I think I'm entitled. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Look at that face. Truth without being rooted and grounded in love manifests itself in arrogance, even fundamentalism. Bishop Tom Wright, writing over 10 years ago, named the Western world as living through what he called a cult of tolerance that he was able to reflect on as being less than Christ-like and ungodly. In the 10 years since his writing, I suspect it's got worse. If I could be so bold as to expand on the imagery of the great N.T. Wright, I have seen in recent times a rise in fundamentalism on both sides of the spectrum. I've particularly seen it within the church. I've just come back from Synod a couple of weeks ago. And the wider culture. On one side of the spectrum, there is a sense that if you don't agree with me, then you're out. People couldn't rightly label that as fundamentalism. But on the other side, in the search for tolerance, inclusion and welcome, we've seen a rise in fundamentalism by another name. You must be tolerant. If you're not tolerant, you won't be tolerated. Which is really just another way of saying that if you don't agree with me, you're out or what we now know as cancelled. Tom Wright suggests that we interpret the the word love in our Western sensibility as meaning tolerance. But limiting it to tolerance can quickly distort love into something that is very unloving. Any parent knows that you can't always be tolerant of a child's behaviour to be loving. Sometimes you need to be intolerant to show love. It is hard, but it's part of the pattern of relationships. And I think that this is where we might find a bridge between where John seems, seems to be taking this group of people to which he writes this little letter, and particularly in verse 7 through 11. 
There's no denying that verse 10 sounds pretty cold. Do not receive into the house or welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching. A refusal of hospitality seems to take it to the next level. Is this some sort of version of first century cancel culture? Well, let's have a closer look and see what we find. There is a primary issue driving John's advice. Verse 7 defines a deceiver as those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. In the first letter of John, he talks about this in chapters 2 and 4. And this verse is effectively a summary, in a way, of those passages. And they emphasize two things. Firstly, that Jesus is the Christ. And secondly, that Jesus was actually human in flesh. This was an issue in the churches that John was communicating with, to the point that he needs to continue to raise it in the letters. There were some in the early church, particularly in the cultural worldview of of humans and, and the gods, who just could not accept that any divine being would stoop so low as to take on human bodily form and all that entailed. And then for that bodily form to subject itself to the pain and suffering of a torturous death on a Roman cross was unfathomable to some. It did not fit with their worldview of what a God was or what a saviour was. And so it was much easier for them to accept that Jesus only looked as if he was human, but really wasn't. Many of the other parts of the Christian faith and Christian community were quite appealing to these people, but they couldn't quite buy the fact that Jesus was fully human and fully flesh. And it seems like some of them became deliberately evangelistic about their perspective and wanted to know and wanted others to know that they vehemently disagreed. How, how our world has changed, one would argue. But they would find their way around different communities, and particularly their own uh, localities, and want to be teaching and preaching and persuading others towards their point of view. This was an issue that played out in the early church councils and is the likely reason that we have the words of the Nicene Creed, which read, when talking about Jesus, that he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. And there's a much lengthier explanation in the Athanasian Creed, which has these words, again referring to Jesus as God of the substance of the Father begotten before the worlds and man of the substance of his mother born in the world, perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. The other important contextual issue of note is that John 
if he's writing to a house church and someone has come to them with this particular agenda, has told this group of people not, for that person not to be received or welcomed. And the context of these words has more to do with public honour and recognition than it has to do with showing compassion and kindness or board and lodgings. If John were writing to our church today, I suspect he would say something like that if someone comes trying to challenge what is distinctive about the Christian faith in the person of Jesus Christ, then we shouldn't hand over our pulpits, our Bible studies, or our Sunday schools to them. Does this mean that we should never have any interfaith dialogue with people of other faiths and backgrounds? Absolutely not. Does this mean that we shouldn't be extending what has become known as Christian charity to those who disagree with our fundamental teachings? Absolutely not. Does this mean that if our friends or our family have walked away from the teachings of the church because they can't bring themselves to believe or believe anymore that we should shun them? Absolutely not. Does this mean that we can't have healthy, robust debate with those who challenge the tenets of our faith or hold a contrary or dissenting view? Absolutely not. There is plenty of scriptural substantiation for all of those practices, not only to be permissible, but that we should actually seek them out and engage in all of those spaces and more. It's an area that we like to call Christian apologetics. What John is succinctly imploring this church community to do is to safeguard their distinctiveness. This distinctiveness of Christian faith is not actually tolerance. The distinctiveness of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ is Lord. When I have had the privilege of joining my brothers and sisters in Christ from churches across the Anglican spectrum and across the denominational spectrum, despite all our nuances and our differences, we all agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in the same way that seeking tolerance has manifested itself in intolerant behaviour, I do confess that the church and myself as a member and a representative of it, has not always held onto our distinctiveness in a humble manner. There are countless examples of our own arrogance, bigotry and intolerance. We have been heavy-handed, superior and demanding of those that we encounter and even of the culture that we live in itself. As a result, it pains me to say that many of us have friends and family who have walked away from the teachings of the church because they can't bring themselves to believe or to believe anymore. But as part of my repentance, I would continue to say exactly what John says in this letter. 
our response shouldn't be to soften or water down our distinctiveness, compromise our truth, or give our teaching, worship, or gathering opportunities over to those who disagree or think differently to us? The answer is that we need to turn more closely towards Jesus. To walk in the commandments of Jesus, to walk in truth and love, is to seek after the likeness of Christ in the way that we treat others, in the way that we value ourselves, in the way that we develop a sense of intimacy with God. In our incompleteness and brokenness, we are never going to get it perfectly right. But if we walk humbly, we love mercy and we do justice as the prophet Micah instructs us, then people both within the community of the church and particularly those outside the community of the church will see in us what I've been calling more recently a beautifully compelling alternate way of life. So it seems that this little letter has a lot to say to us not just to those for whom it was written, but to us living in southeast Queensland in 2021. I pray that we are challenged by these words. We are challenged by the way that we share our faith with one another and with those who don't share our faith at all. We are challenged to ask questions about what makes us distinctive and who do we follow and how do people know that we follow Jesus. I pray that in that exploration, we might find ourselves becoming a church that shows a beautifully compelling alternate way of life. Amen. I can invite you to stand with me as we continue to sing out in praise.